five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everyone, I am in El Dorado, New Mexico today with someone that I'm incredibly excited to interview. I'm with Courtney White. How are you today, Courtney? I, I'm, I'm great, Dan. I appreciate you coming all the way out here. Absolutely. You are, I was trying to figure out the best way to describe you, and it's a little tricky, but you are a photographer, you are an author, you're an environmentalist, and you're an ag guy, which you said to me on the phone the other day, and I hadn't heard that expression in a long time. You said that sometimes people think you're just an ag guy but you're all these other things, which is, would you say that's pretty fair to say, right? It's pretty, pretty fair to say. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly how all those things link together. So maybe in this conversation, we'll figure it I out. I think by the end, we'll have an answer. Okay. So there are so many things I want to talk to you about. And, and for everybody out there, I, I found Courtney somewhat by accident by finding two of his books. You've written several books, but I, I found two of them. And I was completely blown away by these. And immediately, uh, once I figured out you lived in Santa Fe, I thought I'm going to track this guy down. Uh, but I want to go back, way back, uh, to when you were 13, and you sent me an article a couple of days ago, which was a little bit of your history, and there was it, something that really jumped out at me. 13 is really when you found photography, somewhat by accident, and you were on a driving tour of Mexico. And it, give us a little background on yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's um, you know I didn't think about this until a couple of years ago, but uh, uh, when I was 13, this is and this is this is way back in the 70s um, when my parents decided to jettison me for the summer if they could figure out a way. And so I ended up on this five-week driving tour of Mexico. Uh, with a group of uh, high school kids from, a, I think it was kind of a prep high school. Uh, I didn't go to it. I just, somehow I got onto it. And uh, and it completely blew my mind, as, even as a 13-year-old. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Um, we ended up t- driving all the way down to Yucatan and back on this trip. Wow. And most of the kids on the trip were not interested in the things that, that the, uh, the chaperones took us to see, which was a lot of archaeology. Uh, I, it completely opened my eyes. Um, I'd not thought about, as I said in the essay to you, that uh, I grew up in Phoenix, where the oldest thing in Phoenix is, you know, a McDonald's down the street, <laughs> basically. And so suddenly in this first ruin on this trip, uh, the uh, city called Tula, there's this thousand-year-old ruined stuff. And I just completely blew my mind. I climbed around, got yelled at by the chaperones, where are you going? What are you doing? And I had no idea at the time. And so I, and the, the trip was mostly archaeology. Into a lot of different ruins, and at one of them, and, and Chichen Itza down in, in uh, Yucatan, I, I, I took a picture that I described to you, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I was trying to find a way to kind of look at these images a little bit differently rather than just take snapshots, and I ended up finding a, the mouth of a, of a, a stone jaguar, this kind of Mayan god, and it was just sitting there, and I just framed the, the, the ruin through the teeth, and and why that was important, because it, it told me right then and there that I was going to pursue sort of, um, l- l- I guess, left brain questions with right brain, no, I'm sorry, right brain questions with left brain answers, meaning that I was looking for, I, I was very interested in the Maya and the ruins and the archaeology and the history, but I wasn't going to be a scientist. I knew right then I wasn't going to be an archaeologist. Um, I wanted to interpret these things creatively. And, uh, and of course, I'm 13. What do I know, right? But I just, <laughs> you know, I had this little, little X15 box. I still have it in the garage, actually. Uh, and I loved just uh, thinking about these um, these questions, these larger kind of questions, but think, answering them creatively, in this case, with, with pictures. So well, That's a pretty heavy conversation to have as a 13-year-old. Uh, yeah, well, you should... <laughs> And I'm having it with myself at 13 years. I'm not talking to anybody else. And, and of course, I didn't quite realize it at the time. I just, I just, you know, I'm on this trip looking at these ruins and thinking about, um, you know, how do I in- interpret them? But that's, I mean, that's kind of, and, and the point of the story is that, that it set me on this path that I'm yeah. s- still on today. And, and it led directly at the time to archaeology. And so I went back home to Phoenix, signed up with the Amateur Society. here. I'm, I'm 14 now, and I'm volunteering for the Amateur Archaeology Society. Um, I know I don't want to be an archaeologist, but I like being outside. I like digging in the dirt, and I like the sort of intellectual questions. But I, I, I carry my camera around with me. It's not the X-15 now. It's I don't remember what it <laughs> it's was. It's the X-16? It was one of those 
um, God, it was one of those Kodak, not Kodak. Um, anyway, but I, so I'm taking pictures, uh, still asking the same questions. You know, what's going on here? Why are these ruins here? What are these people doing here? But taking pictures of the archaeologists. Uh, and was was the camera at 13 in Mexico? Was it something that you made you were aware of before you left, or it was just something when you got there that you kind of went, "Oh, I've got this thing, and sh- I should use it." But then. In the process of being in Mexico, you sort of refined photo- photography. Sort of made a jump for you when you yeah. did make that Jaguar's tooth photo, and was that right. was it aesthetically, or because you were using it as a framing device in right. the foreground, or was it something else? Well, you know, I, I, you know I, was, I was working off intuition, as, as right as the teenagers will do, and I, I had the camera with me because I was taking pictures, and uh, and, I, and, I, and since I was the youngest person on the trip, I was hanging out by myself a lot uh and in this case i i wanted to take a picture of this ruin that was different than all the other pictures i'd been taking and just but i and i wanted to try and get at this imagery you know how do you this jaguar god and this ruin and this you know this cool stuff and it just you know he just put the ruin between the teeth and took a picture. I, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, but it, it, did, it did start those, these wheels turning in my head about how do you interpret these landscapes? How do you get at some of these larger questions? I mean, I knew from then forward I wanted to be a creative person. I wanted to pursue, as I said, um, kind of left brain answers to, to right brain questions. And that actually brings us all the way up to today because I haven't gone off that path. It's, yeah, it's, it's taken me all these different directions. I'm still trying to figure out exactly where it's all going. Though I've got a sense now, kind of how, how it's shaped up, 50 years later, 47 years later, something like that. So, <laughs> um, you also said something. There was a quote that I pulled from that that uh, article that I loved. That you said you realized that the world I began to see was smaller than it seemed. What what did you mean by that? Well, in, in that in that case in particular. Um, I recognized in the ruins some imagery from Phoenix, actually, and uh, in particular a Mexican restaurant we used to go to, and it was it, it pulled some architectural stuff from the ruins, and I realized that uh, not only did that these these architectural influences go around, but the world itself uh, was 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 going to be smaller than I expected it to be. Meaning that as a kid, I was kind of wide eyed looking as we were driving around, and I realized that there are all these kind of interconnections between cultures and between humans and ultimately between the, you know, the food we eat and the land and that kind of stuff. I just sort of guessed at the time that these, these connections would be very interesting to me as a creative person, um, even though I wasn't going to go into fine art photography per se. I wasn't going into science per se. I wanted something kind of in between. But the world, um, even then I realized, was was going to uh, shrink up on me, which, mm-hmm. which was okay because I wanted to try to find those interconnections. And so you came back. You're back in Phoenix. You're 14. You're volunteering oh, for the, the Archaeological <laughs> Society. Where, what about high school? Where did you did you go to high school in Phoenix? Oh yeah. Well, yes, I did. And um, and actually, was sort of part of the story is I started off in a private high school, uh, a private school, and my father ran into some financial difficulty, and he was a a doctor in town, and. Uh, I, I flipped over to finish the last two years in public high school, oh which where my grades went right straight into the toilet. But I, uh, but I got interested in backpacking, national parks, uh, sort of conservation activities, which then kind of flowed in other things, um, and uh, really just kind of opened my eyes to other things in the Phoenix area besides archaeology, which is what what I had been doing. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's funny. We were just talking earlier. I have a little history in, in Phoenix as well, so it's always good. And I've, I've done a little hiking and backpacking around there, mostly in unbelievably high temperatures, wondering what I was doing out there. Right. And and, 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 and Phoenix, when I was there, you know, has changed a lot. We moved there in 1966. It was kind of a frontier town in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Yep. And I, I didn't like it very much because there wasn't much to do. It was, But, but uh, the city grew. Uh, to what it was like the tenth largest city in the yeah. country today. Yeah. I mean, it's, I go there and it's just phenomenal how it's changed. I'm not necessarily for the better. It kept, it kept claiming that it didn't want to be Los Angeles, and somehow it ended up being like like Los Angeles. But I love the desert. I loved Arizona, and to this day, when I go out into the saguaro country, it feels like home because that's where I grew up, um, backpacking and doing archaeology. You know, that's almost my exact interpretation of Phoenix as well. And I, this is not a proud moment of. Moment of my photographic career, 
But when I worked for the Arizona Republic, I, as an intern, I covered the ceremony where the city of Phoenix passed the city of Los Angeles in square miles, right. and it was a celebration. They were they turned right. it into it, and there was a ribbon cutting, and that was you know I nailed it with yeah. like a fifty millimeter. Yeah, that was a, did not make my portfolio. Well, and back then we were fighting all the uh, highways. Or, you know, the, should we build these highways? Not build these highways? Now, of course, they build all those highways. Yeah. Um, you know, now it's a you know it's a big major city in it the is. middle of a desert. Yeah, it's it's a monster. Uh, okay, so after high school, you made your you made your way to some place called Reed College. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering what is Reed College and why did you end up there, and what well, what impacted it? Yeah, on you? no, that's and that's a good question. So I, uh, coming out of high school with with not great grades, um, but with a lot of uh, intellectual curiosity about the world, um, archaeology and other things, um, I looked around and said, well, I want to go to school somewhere. Um, I'm not sure where, and so I ended up applying just to two schools. One was the university there, Arizona. The other was Reed College, and I was mostly out of a college night at high school we went to, and it seemed uh, interesting. And Reed, Reed is a small liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's, it's if you know if you know Reed, it's kind of well known as a um, uh, how, do, how do I put it? Um, sort of challenge the dominant orthodoxy type of school. It's a uh, revolutionary school. It's rev- it, it, what it taught me, and very usefully, was to be skeptical, but a, but a healthy skepticism, meaning sort of challenge. When someone says something to you, you say back to them, "Really? So sh- show me the data." I mean, what, and so uh, <laughs> well, and, and it became important later when I got involved in conservation, um, and was told by my fellow environmentalists that cattle were nothing but bad for the land, my first reaction from my education at Reed was to say, really, I don't believe it. Show me. And I was going to be skeptical. I'm not going to accept your opinion directly. I want to know. And so in that case, I... um, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but I, in that case, I had met a rancher who was doing things differently, and I, because Reed had trained me to to consider out-of-the-box kinds of solutions to problems, rather than re- rejecting his approach, was to, and he, and, he, and he grazed differently, moved his cattle around. Part of me is like that heretical philosophy, meaning, oh, you're you're pushing the paradigms here. I'm interested in that. So he and I he and I started to talk. But Reed, Reed did that. Reed Reed uh, encouraged students to um, to think in unorthodox ways, challenge you know the status quo, those kinds of things. And ultimately, that seems like it served exactly the purpose that it's supposed to serve, which is to get you right. curious and also stimulated intellectually to question what's right. happened. Before. I mean, the, the professors in class would, would would ask the students to challenge them, right, in class. I'm not sure I did very much. I was kind of a shy student. But I, some of my fellow students would just directly challenge the <laughs> professor. And I thought, wow, that's totally cool. And so I learned that, and I took it with me going forward. I was still doing a lot of photography at the time. Um, and I began to ask myself questions, for example, about the American West. And this is so my from that experience in Mexico then to archaeology and backpacking, I got very interested in this sort of Western, Western mythology, but my, my, my read training told me, don't just go take pictures of cowboys. Uh, ask questions sort of behind the scenes. And so I began to look at other kinds of Westerners, folks who didn't, for example, I'll give you a quick little photography story. So yeah, there, was yeah. a, there was a photo show in Los Angeles when we were, I was going to graduate school. And it was a photo show on Bodie. Do you know Bodie, oh, California? Yeah, sure, sure. So I, we went to it. My wife and I went to it. And uh, I, it was really an interesting moment for me because I went into this show. And these are all black and white pictures of Bodie. And not a single photograph of Bodie had a human being in it. And, and, and when I was, and I'd been to Bodie, and there's tourists walking around, right? But there was all these sort of moody images of buildings and doorways and, you know, pots and pans left behind. And, and it, it struck me as um, kind of cliched, kind of a cliched ghost town kind of imagery. And I wanted something that was active, uh, the tourists. So I actually had to have a picture in a project I did when I went back to Bodie and took a picture of a no smoking sign right in front of a building. And that was that came out of Reed because I wanted, what, what I was taught was just challenge the cliche, challenge the yeah. orthodoxy, challenge, in this case, here are all these pretty, lovely pictures of Bodie 
but they were just right in the stereotype of ghost towns. And, yeah. I, and so I asked myself, I'm going to take it. When I get back to Bodie, I want to take a picture that's not of that somehow. And that just, you know, kind of fed larger things. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the pictures that you were describing the exhibition doesn't really add anything to the conversation. Right. And so you added something. How was the party scene at Reed? Party scene. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I have to ask. I no. mean, every college has their own. Well, that's that's a good question. So I, I got to read, not not having been a party person, I uh, got to read and saw um, people on my floor growing marijuana in their <laughs> rooms. I was shocked, to be honest with you. I, I didn't think they could get away with it. Um, and after the usual freshman year indulgences, uh, I, I didn't participate in the party scene after that because uh, Reed makes you sweat from day one to the to the end, including including the very end. Reed has you have to do a senior thesis project at the end of Reed, and so I, I took that uh, quite seriously. Uh, ended up doing a project on film, on, and that's that's why I wanted to, I wanted to go into anthropological cinema. And that's why I went to graduate school after that. But uh, what the party it? scene, I, no, Reedy's aren't, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's some sort of drug scene at, like any place, but it was a pretty, pretty serious school. So Okay, good. Just checking. <laughs> uh, and also that was a great transition there because you ended up le- uh, leaving Reed and ending up in UCLA in, right. in film school, of right. all things, How to, in the middle of, you know, the talk about megacities of the world. How, well, did, how did that yeah. transpire? So, that, so my interest in photography and my interest in the West uh, as a place, as, as a you know, kind of a subject matter to look at, um, I ended up at, at Reed writing my senior thesis on anthropological cinema, which is sometimes called eth- ethnographic film, just films about other people, tribes. And I thought uh, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And that's, right. kind of, that's kind of where my interests were going at the time. And they're actually here in Santa Fe was... Um, a school called Blue Sky, Blue Sky Productions, or Blue Sky. It was started by the guy who made Kwanaskatsi. Do you remember the film oh, yeah, Sure, sure, absolutely. Reggio, I think it was his name. Yeah. He lived in Santa Fe, and he had started this documentary film school here. And I, I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to go into something like documentary film. So I applied to UCLA's film school uh, for graduate school, got in, got sobered up pretty quick as to the life of a documentary filmmaker, meaning no life as a documentary. So I, I actually flipped over and started working on um, uh, fiction films. I did some writing at an agent for a little while, kind of did the Los Angeles thing. Yeah. After graduation, uh, my wife and I stayed in LA for another almost 10 years. She she came to UCLA to, to do her studies in archaeology, um, so I, I kind of gave up the documentary thing, um, though though my interest stayed with the West and with photography, and then when we moved out to Santa Fe in 1991, she got a job with the Park Service as an archaeologist. Um, I was actually kind of b- between things. Uh, I'd actually done a photography project on the West. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. It's the Indelible West, and which I snagged Wallace Stigner as a introduction for that yeah i was going to ask you about oh, that right. because was ucla the time where you really was did writing yeah. suddenly take on yeah. a new writing so, became uh, yeah so i had to tell you a little story so i i was in film school and uh, floundering uh, f- financially <laughs> if nothing else god it was so expensive uh, went in as you know to do documentary films uh switched over to fiction films was trying to trying to get some writing done uh in the hollywood side of things Working in the basement of the library because I'd have a job, and uh, it was it was uh, the acquisitions department. So all these books were flowing in, and it was it was really wild because all these cool looking books would come in, and I'd I'd you know I'd I'd make them I'd make a note and I'd go read them. And what, my interests were very much on on the West, as I said, but at that time, this is 1990. We were approaching the centennial of the closing of the frontier. Oh yeah, 1890. 1890 to 19. So 1890 was when the U.S. Census declared the frontier closed in the West. And you grew up on a ranch, so yeah. you know. Um, so I, just intellectually, I thought to myself, what does the frontier look like today? 1990, you know, 100 years later. And I'd been studying archaeology and conservation, and I had a sense of what loggers, environmentalists were up to, just, just kind of through my research. So actually, I took that year off. Uh, I had had to still work. I was kind of I sort of zoomed off, and I zoomed back, 
and I did this photography project, um, black and white photo- photographs. Used I bought a Bronica medium yeah. format camera, yeah. and I remember going down to the LA f- uh, photography store, which was huge, was the biggest photography store I'd ever been in. Walking in, saying, "I want." A medium format camera. I don't know why. I never took a class. I, never, I didn't. I don't. I, mean, I was just winging it uh, as a photographer here, and I bought and I taught myself. Actually, it was a film professor who was also a photographer, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, and then I just hit the road for a year to taking. Uh, pictures of the modern West uh, on the centennial of the closing of the frontier. And I just asked myself a question, what does the frontier look like today? And that ended up um, putting that together as, as, a, as a fine art photography project. I, I, I was in the Bay Area one day, and I thought, I'm just going to call Wallace Stegner. What the hell? That's a bold and, move. And he was there in the phone book. And I, I just <laughs> I called him up, and I had the pictures with him and with me. And uh, he said, he said it was the nicest. I mean, to this day, I, I'm shocked by how nice and honorable he was. He said, sure, come on down. I got four hours with Wallace Stegner in his office. Wow. And I went through the pictures. I just showed it to him. And I knew, I suspected he'd, he'd be into it because he... He had a, um, you know, a modern vision of the West in his head. So it wasn't just that cliched cowboy stuff. This was miners, environmentalists, and you know, all kinds of uh, folks in between, shopkeepers. Uh, you know, kind of this vibrant West that I just wasn't seeing in shows like that Bodhi show that I was sure, telling you about. Sure. And he responded to it, and he ended up writing me an introduction. Uh, for it. Uh, it, it, the project um, ran aground. Unfortunately, I, I, I got an agent and, and he found a press and then the press changed his mind and the agent abandoned me. And so the project literally went on the shelf, which, uh, which actually put a, the end of my photographic <laughs> desires because I just, I, I, maybe I abandoned ship too early. Um, but I later um, was able to, thanks to online stuff was able to, to create the book that I wanted to that's just an online version of it now so. the joys of photography and publishing you got a you yeah. got a nice taste early on but look yeah. I mean four hours with Wallace Stegner is worth uh, is worth the oh. time and effort and he was he was just and I he was so nice to me that uh, it's something that I try to turn around and, and you and be nice you know pay it forward to other folks sure that uh, and he didn't have to do that, but that's just the person that he was. I just love the fact that he was in the phone book because he was today, in the phone just book. imagine trying to get to somebody like that today. No, I mean, no. you might you might get lucky, but right. for the most part, no. There's yeah. a, there's a barrier right yeah. now. Yeah. The age of communication, and it's harder than ever to get in yeah. touch with anyone. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump forward a little bit. Sure. You, you um, the next sort of chapter was National Park Service. Yeah. So I, so we after that photography project kind of ran aground. I, I, we had moved out to Santa Fe. Uh, and then the Hollywood stuff, I had, to, I had to leave behind when we moved out here. So that just kind of filtered away. So I was scratching my head, um, uh, what do I do? Uh, how do I earn a living? And so I, I fell back on archaeology, and there was a job at uh, Pecos National Historical Park, which is here near Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was seasonal work uh, for the Park Service. I idolized the Park Service. I always wanted to work for the National Park Service. My wife was employed with them at the time. Uh, in the regional office, and so I took the job. And for four summers, uh, well, more than summers, I worked as an archaeological technician at Pegas. And it was, you know, I was a, the bottom of the barrel. I was, I was just a young guy in the office, but I, I got to, to know a national park really, really well. Um, and Pegas is a fabulous little park. And I ended up writing. Uh, I kept a kind of a journal. Ended up writing a book about it. Because um, in that park you can you can have all ten thousand years of North American history are present in that park all the way up to Greer Garson, you know mm-hmm. the actress, and because she owned part of the land around it. So it was just a neat, uh, it was a neat place, and I liked working in the Park Service. It was going through some changes at the time, um, uh, trying to figure out some some growing pains. This is when. Uh, people were going less and less to parks kind mm-hmm. of in the mid-90s, late-90s. Um, but uh, it was an honor to work there, and I ended up, as I said, writing a, a small history about Pecos. Again, kind of following that thing from Mexico, which was, I'm at a place, this is really interesting, there's some bigger issues here about humans and land use and history. What do I do with this material? And so I ended up uh, writing a small history about it, which is my... 
left brain response to all the right brain questions that Pecos raised by working there. I finished a book this morning called Cities of Gold by Doug Preston, oh, right, right, which, right. Is, which ends in Pecos. Oh, it does? I yeah, didn't know that. They, okay. uh, huh. they ride horseback. They retrace Coronado's route right, from southern right. Arizona to northern New Mexico, right. and it ends in Pecos. Okay. I've, I've been here 10 years. I've never been to that park. You know, and I read about it. I was uh, absolutely thrilled because I'm trying to figure out the first possible date I can get out there right. and take a look at right. it. It's a beautiful little park. Yeah. Um, we talked earlier about Desert Solitaire by Ed Abbey and right. what an amazing book was it. Did you read that prior to your park service or after? Where, yeah. Did that book have any effect on you? Well, yeah, yes. So um, both actually, because I read it. I read it twice. So going up in Phoenix. And in particular, um, watching the uh, my desert, my beloved desert, disappear under pavement. Yeah. In fact, my, my, my parents ran in for a while a horse stable out on the edge of town called uh, Powderhorn Stables. And our only neighbor at the time was a palm tree uh, nursery. It was pretty funny. We drove all the way out there. Now it's Powderhorn Subdivision. It's completely buried oh. under just miles and miles and miles of houses. And so I... I uh, and I'd ask my father, we'd drive around, and I'd say, what's going on? And he didn't really know. He w- wasn't really what he was interested in. But I became aware of environmentalism as, as a result, and so I started to read Edward Abbey uh, in the 80s um, when he was really doing his thing. And I read Desert Solitaire early, and I just loved it. And then later, when I became involved in conservation professionally, mm-hmm. I reread it, and it remains just a f- fabulously well-written um, uh, book uh, exercise, uh, kind of a on meditation on the West and the Southwest. Uh, some of his political positions uh, seem a little out of date now, but uh, what a beautiful uh, yeah. description of the Southwest. So I, yeah. So in the background, I I was interested. In, I joined the Sierra Club young. Uh, I wanted to be active in environmental stuff, and Abby was always uh, Abby and Stegner both were my inspirations. So let's uh, fast forward here a little bit. Were you, 1994, I believe, was the Republican Revolution. Right, right. Were you still at the Park Service? Yeah, yes. Okay, so, so it, this happens and it basically changes your, your uh, life. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So I, so we moved to Santa Fe in 91 and, uh, and I'm working for the Park Service part-time, you know, during the summer. Um, still kind of trying to decide what, what it is I want to do with my life, right? You know, so <laughs> I'm still asking these questions. Um, and uh, And so... Um, so I'm paying attention, you know, to kind of the larger issues. And then the 94 midterm elections happen. This is Newt Gingrich's, um, uh, how do you put it, um, contract on America, I think oh, yeah. it was the way yeah. that we described it. And, uh, and I remember sitting there watching the news that night thinking, oh, holy smokes, all these things I care about, Endangered Species Act, and national parks, because, you know, he talked about privatizing national parks. All these things suddenly seemed endangered. And uh, so literally the next day I called up the Sierra Club and said, what can I do? And, uh, and the Sierra Club representative, uh, Doug Frazier, said, come on down. And, uh, and I got involved as a volunteer in the state legislature for the club. Uh, and this big pushback against the Republican agenda at the time in Congress. And uh, so I ended up writing a column for the Sierra Club News newsletter, which they let me do. And I was just a nobody. I mean, who, why, so I wrote a regular column and then, but I, but here's where the read skepticism came in. Cause uh-huh, I, here we go. So I, I, I'm writing a column, but I'm saying, I'm asking a question, which is what role do, does environmentalism play has played in this national pushback against environmental le- legislation? Meaning that are we at fault here at some level? Were we too extreme? Were we too, and I, I took a lot of grief for this, but I began to I began to look at rural, uh, rural society, rural cultures, these villages in New Mexico. In northern mm-hmm. New Mexico here, you have a 400-year tradu- tradition of mm-hmm. His- Hispanic um, living, and particularly forest use and ranching use. And for the Sierra Club activists to say, off with their heads, you know, no logging, there was a big anti-logging campaign, I thought was extremely insulting to the indigenous populations here. And the club was very unsensitive to this. So I raised those issues, being a, being a good reedy. I'm saying, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. I say, because I was taught in this, in, in the, through environmentalism, that the only answer to these problems was this is sort of extreme solution. So no cows, no logging, no nothing. And I thought, no, it's more complicated than that. And uh, so I wrote a column, and then I met a rancher 
uh, Jim Winder, who joined the Sierra Club at the time. This was an, a period of an intense conflict, mid-90s, between ranchers and environmentalists, particularly over the Mexican wolf reintroduction. And Jim sure. was the only rancher in the state of New Mexico to publicly support the reintroduction of the Mexican wolf. Now, you imagine how that endeared him to his fellow oh, ranchers. Yeah. Yeah. But Jim's, but Jim, Jim was different. He was an out of the box kind of guy on a lot of levels. But particularly the way he ranched, he he, he uh, practiced something called holistic management. Uh, he bunched his cows together. He moved them around. He said, "I've got water. I got wildlife. I get along with the government. All these things that I said I wanted as a conservationist. I want wildlife. I want water. I also want to see these cultures survive." I have to tell you quickly. I got accused by an, an archaeologist. I got accused by an environmental activist in town here years ago. He accused me of being an archaeologist, and what he meant was <laughs> that Courtney cares about culture. And if you're an environmentalist, you don't care about culture. You care about the environment, right? You care about trees. And, and, I, and I, my point was, and I was, I was telling folks, is that culture and the environment are embedded in each, with each other, particularly northern New Mexico. You can't separate them out. But, and so environmentalists were, and it was really annoying because, as Jim showed me, the rancher, that there are win-win solutions here how you manage the cattle, that sort of stuff. So that Jim and I talked, and we said, you know, we need to energize what we call the radical center, Right. Which we're going to get to in a minute. Okay. But um, because uh, you're jumping ahead here, oh, which, is, which is good <laughs> because it's following my notes almost to a T. So the, what, what I find really interesting about this is when the Republican, when the midterm election happens right. and you are, you're instigated, you're, you're agitated by right. this is happening. The first thing you did was immediately make a phone call and get involved. Right. And a, I think a lot of people today, which is one of the questions I have at the end, is a lot of people feel helpless. And, right. at the, and at the time, you were like, I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is. I, I didn't, That's right. You, you didn't know you were going to write a column. You didn't That's know right. if they would return your call, whatever. Right. But you got involved. Right. And you also started something called the Kavira Coalition. Right. And, and was that before or after you met the, Jim the Rancher and had that conversation? After. It was after. Yeah. And what is, what is the coalition? Right. Uh, and so, so, the, so there was a progression here, which is – so the midterm elections happened – I get agitated, like you said. I joined the Sierra Club. I met Jim, the rancher, in the Sierra Club because he joined the Sierra Club to learn what these environmentalists were up to. He and I start to talk to each other, and I, and I, and I say, well, there's this middle ground here between ranchers and environmentalists. Why don't we activate it? Uh, why don't we, we thought about trying to go through the Sierra Club or some other organization, and we said, to hell with that. Uh, well, let's start our own organization. And so in 1997... We found it actually 20 years ago last week. Holy June cow, 11th. congratulations. Yes, 20 years ago last week, Jim and I and another conservationist, uh, Barbara Johnson, she was the newsletter editor, we decided to form this nonprofit and just wade directly into the grazing wars in the West. And this is West-wide. This is not just here in New Mexico. Environmentalists were trying to put ranchers out of business. The ranchers were pushing back saying, there was two bumper stickers at the time that I saw. One said cattle free in 93 and the other one was cattle galore in 94. And that was, <laughs> that was your choices. Those were your choices. So no cows, total cows. Yeah. So we said, look, there's something in the middle here. Um, uh, and this is not just kumbaya. Jim was doing practices on his ranch that were good for the environment, good for land, good for water. I won't go into the details. And I said, we're, let's promote those practices and as a way of bringing groups together and solving problems. And so, we, so the term that came up was the Radical Center. It wasn't a term that we made up. It came out of a ranching group in Arizona where they're trying to find this pragmatic, problem-solving, get-her-done um, on-the-ground solutions to problems. They call it the radical center. So there's a centrist between these extremes, but it's radical because it actually wants to do stuff yeah. rather than just go to meetings and, you know, and shake hands. Um, and so this, this was, in, in the late 90s, this was the um, front edge of what's now called collaborative conservation in the West. So lots, at the time, little watershed groups were just getting together to try to f solve these problems on the ground. The, the the paradigm at the time was that ranchers and environmentalists just w went to war with each other. So right. public opinion or in court or whatever it was, and, and on the ground, you didn't talk to each other. So across the West, these little bonfires of collaboration started. Today, it's everywhere. Uh, the collaborative conservation just took off. In the West, West wide, you have these little pockets of groups, now bigger groups working together. But we were, we were fortunate to be one of the in the vanguard of that, and the Kivira, which is focused in New Mexico and Arizona, uh, uh, 
promoted uh, the radical center. No legislation, no lit- litigation. We're going to work it out at the grassroots. In fact, I called wow. ourselves the ultimate grassroots organization because we were focused on the grass and the roots. <laughs> Literally. So, and so you grew up on a ranch. And so we started by taking tours to ranches, to well-managed ranches. Uh, anybody who wanted to come, so ranchers, city people, whoever, and we would talk about land and water and food. And when you do that, it strips off all the politics, right? Yeah. And you just talk about what's going on on the ground. And everybody, you, you can talk about these things. And this this was revolutionary at the time because everything had been couched at this political level. Yeah. Like, we didn't talk about the wolf. We didn't talk about gun control. We didn't talk about, you know, Bruce Babbitt or Bill Clinton or whatever. We talked about animals and water and soil. And that, and that to this day, that is still the way we can have this common ground out here in the West. How were you, what was the reception to you and that organization when you went out into the field? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, there was two, there's two kinds of reception. So there was resistance. And resistance came from what I call the conflict industry. So the folks who who benefited both materially and spiritually from conflict. So environmentalists on one side, envir- ranchers on the other side, the folks who were really embedded in their conflict, uh, didn't they didn't want to hear this. They did not want to hear that there was this kind of radical centrism. So they attacked us. Um, and this is you know, mainstream environmental groups, and this is the Cattle Growers Association. Nobody wanted to hear about this kind of effort to try to solve these problems. But at the same time, the the media and the public really responded positively. They they at the time uh, saw this conflict as being highly. Um, you know, deteriorating mm-hmm. the political landscape by fighting each other. And so we got instantly got all this great press. And, hey, you know, it's an answer to this conflict. Hey, these groups are going to work it out on the ground. And then a lot of the public, particularly folks who live in cities, who are conservationists by nature, want, wanted, but who, you know, worried about where the food comes. They understood that the radical center is where they wanted to be. So there was a very strong push forward from the groups that are not invested in the conflict industry. And we were really um, happy and buoyed by this, you know, that, that and we, had, we started an annual conference. And a lot of people came to it just looking for this pragmatic middle ground here. And we were feeling um, pretty good about it. And maybe at the end of this conversation, we can circle back to this because um, oh, yeah. well, it's deteriorated since then. You I, know? Well, my next question was, uh, you know, how does it feel 20 years well, last week? It's, it's, it's discouraging, I'll be honest with you. I'm just, I'm just going to be frank with you. I, 20 years later, uh, we're fighting some of the same fights. Uh, things are better on the ground, at the ground level. There's lots of grassroots collaboration. Uh, the toolbox for land restoration, and, and we have a lot of degraded land out here, folks don't understand, for a lot of hard use for all those years. I don't know about the ranch that you were on. Uh, we got involved with a guy named Bill Zedike who does a lot of creek restoration, he very mm-hmm. biocentric stuff. So we spent a lot of time collaboratively working on these landscapes. The toolbox for that has enlarged dramatically over the last 20 years, whether it's uh, grass-fed food, organic farming, watershed restoration, cattle management, forest restoration, all these kind of cool things. At the, at the ground level, lots of going on. Yeah. Go up a level, at the cool. state level, we're fighting. But go up in the, at the national level, it's terrible, right? I mean, yeah. you have to have policy. You have to have money. And you have to have a political will to do these things. And so the, I have to be honest with you, the 2014 midterms, 20 years later, uh, we were back in the same situation. So we had the red-blue divide. You had the same attacks on the Endangered Species Act, except now kind of at a higher level. It was – so I, I, I feel torn between progress at the ground level and a retreat, frankly, at the national level. And, and since – uh, Trump became president, it's deteriorated that level a lot faster, and it's frustrating. I can only imagine. <laughs> now, your one of your first books came out of this time frame, Revolution on the Range. Right. What was it like to actually sit and complete uh, a full-on, oh, your first book? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So when I when I started working Kivera, and this actually flows out of the photography book I did with Wallace Stegner, where I, I actually went around and tried to get past these cliches about the West and look at you know real kind of Westerners. And so when we started working in Kivira, I was meeting all these, these folks on the ground doing this innovative work, ranchers, restorationists, farmers. You weren't seeing them in the media. You weren't reading their stories. Uh, what the press wanted was conflict, 
you know, or you know this kind of radical centrist argument. But basically, they they, they weren't they were missing they were missing big parts of the West. I wasn't seeing it in print. So I said, well, to hell with this. I'll write them myself. And so <laughs> I actually approached a, an online newspaper at the time called Headwaters News, which is not around anymore. And they they were looking for stories, success stories, you know, folks doing things on the ground. And I said, can I write you some profiles? And he said, absolutely. So I wrote him his profiles and didn't get paid, of course. And But he printed them. And, and as I wrote more and I realized there's all these stories. And I was, so now I'm fishing around for more stories, finding them, writing them up. And that eventually became Revolution on the Range because then I, I, I collected them together some other writings I was doing about collaboration in the West, and I, I just bundled them all. I sat in a, uh, an A-frame on a ranch, James Ranch in Durango, that little A-frame, and just made these piles on the floor. And I said, oh, these are all different stories. And I just kind of collated them together. A friend of mine knew somebody at Island Press, and I sent it to Island Press, and they said, absolutely, and they published it. And I thought, this is easy. <laughs> Little did I know, but it was easy. But, it was, but that's how it came about. And they were excited because they, they wanted to see um, – uh, hopeful stories about the West. You know, we got a lot of unhopeful stories, a lot of conflict, a lot of stories about overgrazing and, you know, that sort of stuff. Here's a, here's a group of stories about real people uh, doing proactive, radical, centrist solutions to these problems. And so that's, that's how that came about. So I want to move on here to a, a, a basically how I found you, which is through two books. One's called Grass, Soil, and Hope, and the other is called Age of Consequences. And I and and these books talk about several things. They talk about the C word, carbon, right? And they also talk about new ranching in the West. And right. these were two two things that uh, when I got done with the books, I was just spinning around in a circle because <laughs> I thought this is this is such an interesting topic. I know this is unfair, but can you? Describe those two things, sure. the new ranching and the idea of what, what carbon is and how it works being yeah. held in the soil. Yeah. So the new ranch was when I met Jim Winder and we started, when we started Kivira and we started talking about these newfangled kind of ranching things that he was doing. Uh, we fished around for a term. I just made up the new ranch. It's not terribly imaginative, but it did describe kind of this, uh, this movement of holistically minded or progressive ranchers. And this, the idea was simple. The, the idea is that the, the ecological processes on the land that make land productive for cattle are the same processes that make it healthy for wildlife. Meaning that if you look at the grass and the water and the soil and all that stuff that goes on underground, it's the same stuff, right? It's, so it's, it's, you, grow help, you grow healthy plants for cattle, you grow healthy plants for wildlife. It doesn't matter um, what you do on top of it. It's, it's how the, the ecology uh, comes about. So all these ranchers, these new ranchers, were uh, managing in nature's image. They were grazing their cattle like they were bison. So they move them across these landscapes for short amounts of time, move them away, the grass grows, wildlife comes in. So the new ranch is really ranching in nature's image the way that nature would, would graze these landscapes. So that became the new ranch. It was extended to include restoration activities. We had a lot of degraded land out west. Sure, and so sure. how do you do it as animals? Animals can be used as tools for... for... Anyway, so the new ranch was kind of this uh, umbrella for all of these progressive land management uh, practices that had land health at the core, meaning okay. this get healthy land. And if you get healthy land, then you can do stuff. If it's not healthy, it's all going to fall apart. So whether you want to do recreation or hunt or grow food or grow cattle, you got to have healthy land. So that's what the new ranch was about. And that continues today. I mean, the, the what we would call the soil health movement or the land health movement has really grew out of kind of that, of which carbon is key. And I didn't know that. And I didn't, I didn't, we didn't talk about carbon. We just talked about cattle. We talked about above ground. So above ground, cattle, wildlife, plants, water, that's above ground management. No, none of us thought about what's going on below ground. In fact, today, my heroes are microbiologists, the folks who are studying this universe in the soil. In fact, I got a book right here that I'd recommend uh, called The Hidden Half of Nature by David Montgomery. Um, the hidden half of nature. It's all about the microbes in the soil. So, but to answer your question, so in, um, in, in 2007, 2008, I became concerned about climate issues. And I, I had not thought about this before. I was just focused on food and cattle and restoration. And somewhere in there, I became, uh, probably from reading a book, I got concerned about climate issues. And I saw Al Gore's movie. So I started thinking about this. And then I ran into a rancher in California, up in the Bay Area, uh, John Wick, who's in 
grass soil hope. Yep. And so he was he was trying to tackle the, the uh, climate issues through cattle management and his little ranch. And I won't tell you the whole story, but basically it's about carbon. It's about photosynthesis. So CO2, if you remember your elementary school biology. Barely. I didn't go to read. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they taught you in high school. Oh my God. So, you know, plants, plants have photosynthesis. Plants, they're green. They pull in carbon dioxide, right? That's, that's, that's their food. And then the C breaks off from the O2 and the C is carbon. It goes into the soils where it's stored. So basically, if you have healthy rangelands, healthy plants, you can start store carbon in the ground it's more complicated than that but uh, so and so uh, John told me that some soil scientists had run the numbers if you could wave a magic wand increase the soil carbon content of all the earth's pastures and grazing lands farms and ranches you could sequester as much co2 as we have in excess in the atmosphere you could solve the climate problem i thought holy smokes that's I mean, a that's, pretty astounding yeah, statement it's an astounding statement and at the time this is 2010 i met him in 29 2009 i had not heard any of this and this i mean i've fairly well read and got my antenna up kind of prospecting around and I didn't know there was this kind of carbon connection and John said yeah so then I really started digging around I found pockets of scientists and ranchers activists mostly in the farming community looking at carbon sequestration in soils and you know if you're a gardener anyone who's listening to this as a gardener you know that dark rich soil in mm-hmm. your garden is carbon mostly and it's the food carbon is the food for plants um, it needs the roots. The roots need it. They use it. What they don't use gets stored. As long as you don't till it, don't turn it over, it stays in the soil. And actually, the soils can soak up huge amounts of carbon. Anyway, so that uh, John said, "There's all this stuff going on." I found out about it. Got really excited about it, and ended up writing Grass Soil Hope, which is uh, kind of a primer on how we can sequester carbon in soils through progressive farming and ranching practices. And I spent four or five years working hard on that. In fact, I stepped down as, oh, we didn't quite go into this. So I started Kivira Coalition. I, I co-founded it. I was executive director for about uh, 13 years. Mm-hmm. So I grew it up and we did all this stuff. Then I stepped aside to write books. And okay. I became the creative director and a protege of, of mine, a young woman, Avery, took over uh, to be executive director. And then she allowed me to write these books. So I focused really kind of a phase of my life where I focused on um, practical solutions to global problems, in this case, climate, and mm-hmm. also food. We've got a lot of people to feed. Yeah. Got a lot of water. And tomorrow yeah. we're going to have a few more. And tomorrow we're going to have a bunch more, probably. Yeah. Um, so the, these, so we, where we started off just talking about cows walking around the land, we ended up talking about carbon and climate and water and restoration. And it kind of blew, blew my mind. But at the same time, it was exciting because there's all this problem solving going on. And partly because, because at the national level, it just wasn't getting done. So at the ground level, grassroots level, all this innovation, and, that, and it's that gap between the national and the local yeah. that's the problem. Because uh, bridging that gap um, has been hard. You try to scale up these endeavors um, and get things changed at national levels. And now we've got all kinds of problems at the national level. Yeah, I don't even want to think no, about the I national level. About, I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that brings up a really good point, which is grass, soil, and hope. And the, the first two, to me, are self-explanatory. The third part of that equation, yeah. hope, is a very interesting thing to me because I look around. If we look at what's happening at the national level today, and you, if you turn on the news and look at anything that's happening coming out of Washington, it's kind of horrifying. Yeah. It, it can also be thrilling. It's so It's so horrifying that it can be thrilling in a weird kind of twisted way. But I also look at things like, um, you know, what's happening in the Mideast and some of the, the attacks and things in Europe. And what the, one of the key words that I think is missing in a lot of the conversations is hope and the power right. of what that hope will bring. Right. And when you look at this, let's say, the new ranching system today, and you said that you, there have been some setbacks over the past 10 years. Is there, do you feel hopeful about where this is headed or where do you think? And, and it leads me, this is a, a tricky sort of second part question, which is, we are now a culture that is primarily living in cities. Right. And you have two to three generations of kids who now have no association right. with the land whatsoever. Right. So is there hope? And two, how do you take a population that's a city population and educate them in a way that doesn't make them feel insecure, right. but gives them hope and also makes engaging with environment, climate, et cetera, okay outside of the political right. spectrum? Wow. 
<laughs> yeah, that's like 17 that's, questions yeah, and, in one. Uh, uh, how much time do we have to answer this question? Um, you got, so, you know, 60 seconds. This 60 is a radio seconds. show here. Um, so the, the, the quick answer to the hope question is um, that, and what I mean by hope in that context, at least, at least where I started, was that the solutions to climate are usually pitched to these large things, right? So you got to sequester carbon in the, I mean, uh, CO2 in the ground, or we've got to have nuclear power, or we've got to like all these large Big things. And what, what I found was that there was these on-the-ground, small-scale, shovel-ready, beta-tested-already solutions to these problems, meaning these ranchers and farmers have been doing this for a while, organic farming, progressive cattle management, we know how to restore creeks. We, none of this had to be invented. It's all been kind of worked out, and it sucked up all this carbon, potentially, and put it in the ground. To me, that was very hopeful because it was, and I wrote a book about this called 2% Solutions, that you know you can do um, big things for little bits of carbon, little bits of population, little bits of money, meaning that just a farming and ranching population, and most folks don't know this, and this kind of gets to your second question, that the farming and ranching population in this country is 2%, maybe wow. less now. Wow. It used to be 60 to 70% of this nation were farmers and ranchers, you know, kind of back turn of the last century. Now it's 2%. It's probably shrinking wow. even more. But nevertheless, those 2% can do a lot. If you raise the carbon content in the soils just by 2%, that can suck up all this stuff. And it's not very expensive. All of that turned, translated into hope for me. Again, we do a shovel ready. These things have been tested. Let's just do them. Um, and so we don't, we don't have to go invent something. And I think there's this general idea that we're still waiting for this miracle technology to come down and save us from climate change. I don't know if it's out there or not, but we, this was plants and animals and water and soil. We want yeah. food anyway. It's here now. We want water anyway. Let's, so that was all very helpful to me. What became um, harder later was figuring out how to scale up these practices. So we got all this. We got the sweetest stuff. It works. How do you scale it up even to a middle level and get some actual progress? Not the invention, not the beta testing, but actual. And that's been harder. And then at the federal level, you need a lot of these things need policy changes. You know, the farm bill, all these sort of things. Congress could be very helpful here, but it's not been helpful. So hope hope becomes here, here's my here's my short answer. Um, um, hope without action is just wishful thinking. So meaning that you've got to have action. Whether there's enough action is up to you. Do you think there's enough action? Um, I think there's not enough action. So right now we're still in kind of the wishful thinking stage. I don't want to be discouraging, though, because I want folks, especially young folks, to understand that there are these solutions that are out there. We don't have to sit and wait for Bill Gates Jr. to solve our problems. We can solve them ourselves. But it's got to have action at, at, at state and federal levels and then global levels. And then Trump pulling out of the Paris climate. I went to, I went to Paris. I, went, I was part of a delegation. I went with a group called Regeneration International. It's a bunch of agriculturalists. And that was very hopeful. It was a modest step, but it, nevertheless, it was a first step. And at that Paris meeting, they adopted a statement and saying, we're going to push soil carbon as an answer to these problems, which is great, because in agriculture, they don't think about these things. They did. And then the retreat by Trump just last month um, set that back. And so hope becomes a complicated question here. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to sound unhopeful because there's still a lot going on, but it's got to happen at that level at some point. Yeah. Or what I don't even want to think about. Yeah, or I, what I don't either. But the second part of this: How do you get uh, folks who don't live in cities? I don't live in a city. I'm a city boy. I grew up in Phoenix. I was about as far away from agriculture as you could possibly be. Um, through my conservation work, I met the rancher Jim Winder. We got involved. I understood that there's a link between what I eat and the water I use in the city. Where it comes from is a rural landscape. So we should be aware of those connections. We aren't because we think food comes from the grocery store, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we have all this demonization of the cow that's happened in the last 20 years. The cow, the cow, you know. Um, so, that, so that ranching and farming and agriculture generally got a bad reputation. On, on top of that, you got industrial agriculture, right, yeah. which is terrible, yeah. feedlots. So that gives ag a bad reputation. So kids today go, I'm going the other way, right? I'm going over here. But if they could support regenerative agriculture through their food, and more young people are. We started an apprenticeship program at Kivira to get young people involved. But uh, so, so to answer your question, 
I decided to stop being executive director of the nonprofit and moved into writing, mm -hmm. trying to reach larger audiences. And that was goes back to Mexico <laughs> when I was a kid. Again, how do, how do I have these interests, these intellectual interests, yeah. but how do you explain them? So I'm going to do it creatively. Um, and so photography early, writing later. I'm still doing writing now. I'm actually just finished a novel this uh, last month, kind of on some of these same issues. Uh, just trying to find a way to kind of get these messages out. Uh, and, and then you get into the social media world and that sort of stuff, and that's fr frankly over my head. I don't, I don't quite these, – these, these issues defy short video sound bites, unfortunately. I'm, I'm going to uh, explain that in a different way. Social, <laughs> social media is not over your head. It's actually way, way, way under your head, and you're exactly right. It, it, to me uh, and it, anybody who's listening to this uh, – Interview knows, if you've been on my site, you know I am not a fan of social media. I think it's set back, not just things like the photography world, but I think it's set back our collective yeah, attention span. I agree. I think people hitting a like feel like they're do doing right. something and getting involved, and I don't believe that at all. Right. I think it's something we're going to look back on in 20 years and be embarrassed about right. this time frame that we've lost. But uh, So you're, you're working on new books. You're writing. Um, I, you still carrying a camera every now and then? Maybe taking a picture I, here and there? Yes. Um, that's that's interesting. So I... So, I want to I want to back up just for a second. So I'm looking back over my work, and I mentioned this to you. I think um, when we first started noodling on this, that um, I, see, I see my work kind of organized in a way now in retrospect. So I had a, a very intensive Western focus, you know, mm -hmm. Wallace Stegner in the West and archaeology and cattle, and then I moved into kind of these solutions zone, thinking about how you solve these problems. And, and now I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a place now I want, I want to tell stories. I, I want to um, – so in that, in that uh, middle zone, the solution zone, I did a photography project called This Moment in Time where I took my digital camera around, took pictures, just trying to capture this moment, which I, I think we're at a critical juncture, maybe a little bit past it, um, uh, before Trump was elected. I, there was kind of, that, kind of a 10-year period in there where all this stuff was going on. I tried to capture that in photography. And now I'm, in, now I'm in a place where I'm interested in storytelling. Um, and I, um, I'm working on a, a nonfiction book, I hope that, that goes, called The Story of Us. kind of looks at our, our history. I can follow my genealogy back in time to uh, France and then Africa. Try to figure out how we, how, how we tell stories to each other, but do it in a way that's effective and not these little short stories, but actually real stories. And so I wrote a novel, and, I've, um, and I think about photography and the idea of how do you capture this moment in time, maybe through smartphone photography. I don't know. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, but, I, but I want to go back to your point for a second. It feels like the world is super saturated in images, in little clippy things. And I, I like YouTube videos. I, I'm working on a book with a rancher right now that I sit and watch his talks, and they're useful. But I just I find it perplexing how you how you reach folks uh, t today when the, everyone seems so saturated in stuff. You know, just right. I mean, you know more than I do. I mean, well, I think. I think it's a you're in an interesting position because you're you've already authored I don't know how many books right and to sit down and and to actually complete a book I mean I've talked about writing a book I've talked about writing a screenplay of which I have an amazing idea for by the way <laughs> but I but I've never done that right. and so you are you're you're basically brain works in long form and you're now engaging with a world right. that is that is obsessed with the short form right. Right. But I think ultimately what you'll hear is that there's no market for long form long form and right. anytime someone tells you that there's no market for something, it means that they're trying to sell you on something right, else. Right. So I believe that what will survive is the long form. Right. And I think eventually when social media wears itself out and the Instagrams and Facebooks of the world have been replaced by something else, it's not to say that that kind of uh, information delivery is going to go away. It's not. It's probably going to get worse. But I still think in the background, what will remain, the bones are going to be right. long form right. because I think somewhere in our DNA, that's what we yeah, most respond I to. I, I also agree. think that the people... The people that I have hope for in the future are the ones who can work in both worlds. Right. They can understand short form and long form. They can cut through it. But one, you're talking about noise. Right. And two, you're talking about traction. And noise is never going to go away. And traction is a fickle, fickle thing. 
because you can have traction through social and it has and it means nothing right and you put a, a, a printed copy of a book in front of the right person at the national level right. and something changes right. and it's not to say that that works every time that way but it is a different paradigm now it's a different right. way of working but to me you have a leg up because of your history with right. being able to complete these things right. and um you know i think uh I have ho- I have hope for you. Don't, don't, don't worry, it's there. I think I think you'll be fine. Well, I think you're right. I think long form in the end, if we if we can not fall apart as a society in the in- interim, uh, is is the way to, to communicate these things ultimately. And and it, and I go back to the fact we've been reading books since what, thirteen seventy eight. It's a form that works, and and people and these, our our children grew up reading books and they swear by them, and so. You know, all you can do is get a good idea, sit down, write it out, and hope that somebody publishes it and, and reads it. Um, and I've tried the, the social media stuff. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I just find it not as um, satisfying, I guess. It just, yeah. just it doesn't quite get to things that but, – but photography, I mean, a photograph is a short – form right i mean it's yeah. a picture yeah and you put a string them together you've got kind of a long form exactly collection of, bo- of images yeah. and that's so we've been dealing with short form long form for a long long time short stories you know that kind of stuff absolutely what i what i don't like is just the lack of depth i mean you can do short form as long as it's i, mean, I heard maya angelo read some twitters that she wrote holy smokes i mean she made these little haiku poetry twitter things <laughs> i mean you can do that right yeah. But uh, so much, so much of us don't. And and the other thing that bothers me, I'm just going to say this, is that we, because the radical center is where we spend a lot of our time, that the the quick anger, the lack of compassion, the lack of centrism, in the sense that we can find left right solutions here. A friend of mine likes this, tells a little story that uh, when you build a house, you go to build a house as a group of people, you put all your politics aside, right? And you build a house. You got the hammers and the saws. You know, and, and that's that's what I'm talking about. We just don't seem to be willing to do that now. And I just don't know what the answer to that is. Because fundamentally, society, you have to get along with each other at some level. Right. Um, and if you don't, then things just come flying apart. I just, you know, I have to be honest with you, I kind of put my head down in terms of the daily news, and I'm just zeroing in on some things that I want to write about, talk about, um, not in, as engaged uh, with the kind of the national problems as I used to be, because I just don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I, I'm just being honest. I, about two weeks ago, I decided to stop following what was happening uh, news-wise because I realized I wasn't learning anything, and that it was too reactionary. And, I, and I've, I've been sort of severely disappointed in the media itself. Right, I think the right. media painted themselves into a corner that they're never going to get right. out of. So I kind of cut it off. And to me, the ultimate backbone of this whole thing is the book. I think right, the book is right. such a powerful tool. And I always tell people, last year I think I read about 80 different books because oh, wow. I, I quit social media for the most part, even though I am still have one little toe in it. Uh, and that's for work reasons. Uh, and I stopped going online unless I had to. Right. And suddenly you have a lot of time to read. Right. And so I read these books and one, I felt a lot more intelligent. Even I don't know whether I was or not, but I felt that way. But you also realize that what you're getting from the media, let's say that something happens in Paris, right? Where right. there's the terrorist attack the other day. You're getting a version of what happened. And what happens a year, two years, three years down the road is the books, the books start to come out. Right. And the books have taken the time to do the research and right. connect a lot of dots. The problem is our culture isn't about books right. that so much anymore. Right. So you've got to balance. But what I've found is that there are a network of people out there who are more book people, long form, who are, like right. you said, in the center, who are, who are willing to stop the reactionary conversation, stop pointing fingers and say, let's actually do something right. that works. Right. It's right. very cool. Yeah. I was so happy to find your books. And it... <laughs> it um, Thank you. I'm in love with the West. I always have been, and I have been sort of toying in the back of my head over the past couple of years of how do I re-engage with this place. And uh, when I read those books, it got me fired up again, thinking about Wyoming, thinking about the farm and ranch as a kid. And I am I'm so glad that you had the time to do this, and you you let me come by and uh, oh, well, and take up so much of your morning. No, no, I I, I really appreciate the, the chance to talk about these things because it's one of the few conversations I've had where we can kind of wrap up all of the above. Usually, you made a little joke about. Uh, me being ag, uh, uh, an ag guy. An ag, well, that's because most folks, I mean, I give talks and things, and people want to hear about cattle grazing, and they want to hear about organic farming. I'm writing a book with a rancher right now, 
but but to me, there's, it's, it's it's so much bigger than that. And then the the role of creativity in particular, you know, how can we through photography or writing, not just science, not just you know, the, not not just the practices on the ranch. You know, we move our cows here or there. It's the story. It's and I I felt very strongly at the end of kind of a long process here that storytelling is the missing link here. We've got the practices, we've got the science, we know what to do, we know how to fix Greeks, we know how to grow these good food, we know all this stuff, and we beta tested it, and we know the collaborative model, we know the radical center works. What's missing, I think, is that storytelling element that really hits people where they are. I don't think it's six-second videos. I think it's longer than that. I think it's books or maybe long essays or photography but but nevertheless you, you still have to you have to you have to grab them and this talk about the dna our dna i mean i being an anthropology and archaeologist background i'll just say quickly uh, and my wife and i have talked about this a lot um you know if you go way back way back we sat around the campfire as a species right sure and so what, what do we do around that campfire well, we sang, we danced, we did theater, we told stories. Yep. And we did it for hundreds of thousands of years. So this is deeply in our system. That's why we like to hear stories. That's why we watch television at night. We watch, the, that's the campfire for us today. You don't watch movies during the day, you watch them at night. And you yeah. watch the stories. And, and it's actually some good research on this. But anyway, so I, my, my focus now is trying to tell what I know uh, in a, in, a, in a better story f format. So I, um, so I appreciate the chance to kind of explain that. Of course. And I think the only people who watch television during the day are those guys that were growing weed at Reed <laughs> College. I'm pretty sure they watch TV during the day. But no, I think you're right. I think creatives have a responsibility to our culture. I don't think we're often looked at in that way. Right. But if you look at the GDP and you look at the contributions from the creative field, right. it's actually significant. Right. And we don't often get credit for that. Right. But creatives, uh, to me, are translators, right. and they're able to take different groups of people, but we have a responsibility to culture and society right. to show people a different right. way. So clearly you are, you've been successful at it, and I hope that you uh, continue to be successful. I'm going to be riding herd on you from now on okay. and, and like trying to figure out what you're doing. But thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We're going to do some portraits here in a minute, and then I'm going to get out of your hair. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, Dan, very much, and uh, the opportunity to, to talk about all these things and keep up the good work yourself. Thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again in the near future. All right. Sounds great.